Let me pray and uh, now we'll consider John chapter 8 together. Gracious Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word and now we ask please that you'd be with us by your spirit and speak to us. Uh, Speak to our hearts through me. We pray that I would speak truthfully and encouragingly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, freedom is a magical word, isn't it? It's a magical word. Uh, The movie Braveheart, which was made nearly 30 years ago, uh, was about uh, the Scots fighting for their freedom against the English. And uh, who can forget Mel Gibson with half of his face painted blue on his horse there rallying his ragtag Scottish troops, you know, in urging them forward to fight against the English, crying out, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. I was nervous about that. (laughs) Might it be easier to gain freedom in some other way than having to fight? Uh, Another section of popular culture thinks that it's You can get your freedom just by dancing. Madonna sings, only when I'm dancing do I feel this free. I mean, is the perennial human hope for freedom, is it as simple as just turning up the music and getting into the groove? Or is freedom something that we can't gain for ourselves? Do we need somebody to free us? There's a movie at the moment Uh, that's in cinemas called The Sound of Freedom. It's based on the true story of a man who is still uh, working in the fight against child trafficking. Uh, And this has become one of the more successful of these sort of independent, Christianized movies that are being made these days. Uh, The subject of child trafficking is a horrendous subject. And uh, though I haven't seen the movie, I gather there must be some rather harrowing references in it. But this points out to us that sometimes in our world there can be no question of a person gaining their freedom for themselves, like fighting for their own freedom. Sometimes we need to be freed by another. Now, the six verses that begin the passage that we read tonight, John uh, this morning, John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, these six verses here are Jesus most extensive teaching on the subject of freedom. Uh, The way to freedom is to be Jesus' disciple. By being Jesus' disciple, he teaches here, we know the truth and the truth will set us free. The truth he is teaching us here is the means of freedom. I think there's a double meaning when Jesus says the truth will set you free. Because at one level, the truth will set you free. It's a piece of wisdom which is, which is always applicable. Uh, and that is because tyranny is built on lies. Uh, the citizens of North Korea, as I learned from hearing a podcast of a young woman who escaped from that dreadful place, are fed on lies Lies which are so audacious that you wouldn't believe that people could believe these things, but they do because they know nothing different. 
the calendar in North Korea begins at the advent of Kim Il-sung. They don't know of any history prior to that. Uh, This woman recalled only being aware of a few foreign countries existing, China, Japan, uh, the USA, which they were taught was evil, and South Korea, which they were taught was a colony of the USA. She had never heard of Australia. This is how she summed it up. We did not even know that we were oppressed. That captures it, doesn't it? That is, that shows us that tyranny is sustained by lies. And therefore, the truth has the power to liberate from tyranny. So Jesus' words, the truth will set you free, these are a general truth uh, which are true independent of the gospel because wherever there is a tyranny, it's built on lies and the truth is what's needed to dispel it. But this brings us to the second and more specific meaning of Jesus saying because he's not only referring here to the truth as simply you know, a true proposition. The truth he is speaking about is a person, isn't it? He is the truth. As we will hear in the very famous passage from John chapter 14 later on in this gospel, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the personal embodiment of truth. He is the capital T, truth. He's also the supremely powerful person who can liberate from slavery. Jesus is stating here that he is the liberator And you can guess that his role as liberator has everything to do with the death that he will die on the cross uh, at the end of the gospel. But he's also saying something about how knowing him will liberate us from slavery because it will dispel the lies which hold us in bondage. The big question though is, what is that bondage? You see, the people listening to Jesus that day, they, they might not have fully understood what he meant, but they, they understood this much, that he was implying they weren't free. By saying to them, the truth will set you free, Jesus was saying to them that they were in bondage, that they were slaves. And they took offence at this because, have a look at their answer in verse 33. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? The Jewish people are the descendants of Abraham. And it seems that this gave them a proud belief in their freedom. Now, as we know, of course, they were not fully politically free at this time. They were under the Romans. But they could see themselves as free children of Abraham. As Australians, we like the idea of freedom. It's not as central to our culture as it was to many groups in the ancient world, especially the Greeks. But when Jesus comes along to us Aussies and says the truth will set you free, I suppose there must be some Australians also who would be prone to take offence And who would say, well, are you saying we're not free? Haven't you heard our national anthem? Australians all let us rejoice 
for we are one and free. So Jesus has to explain what sort of bondage that he's talking about. And he explains it there in verse 34. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So that's the bondage that Jesus is speaking of. It's a bondage to sin. Uh, And uh, in in Jesus' teaching, it is the, the deepest and most fundamental slavery that there is. People often think that when Jesus or any uh, uh, Bible uh, text speaks of slavery to sin, people think it, it, it's, it's saying, well, that you can't resist sinning. It's as though you're sort of addicted to sin. But I don't think that is what Jesus means uh, because uh, a, a non-Christian is quite able to resist temptation. Nobody, nobody perfectly resists temptation, but a non-Christian is able to resist temptation. So it's not as though they're addicted to sin in that sense. And uh, by the same token, when we become a Christian, uh, we, don't, we don't stop sinning, do we? Uh, we do have a new will and desire to please God, and so therefore we try not to sin, but we don't successfully fully stop sinning. So for, for that reason, I don't think that that Jesus speaking here of slavery to sin is speaking about some sort of sin addiction. No, the slavery to sin is more insidious than that. You see, sin is a master that makes itself seem kindly. I mean, sin lets, lets you do what you want, doesn't it? I mean, who could not like that? People fall in love with their sins. It's very difficult to hate sin because sins are what you want to do. Sin as a master offers us small victories. Those times when we resisted temptation make us think that sin's not our master and that we're still in control. But the immovable fact is that sin wields the power of death over everyone who is not in Christ. Uh, If we're not a believer then we live our whole life under the shadow of death and at the end of our life, sin takes us. Sin is the worst of tyrants. It makes a person love and adore it and in return for all that devotion, it gives death. That's why Jesus says in verse 35, that a slave has no permanent place in the family. But a son, a son, he says, belongs to it forever. The image here where Jesus is speaking about the slave and the son, it's of an ancient household, because as you know, ancient households, they had the family and the son who would be the heir, and they also had the, the household slaves. Jesus, though, is using that as an image of the heavenly household. He is talking about himself when he speaks about the Son. Jesus is the only one who has the natural right to be in God's household forever. And so, if the Son sets you free, verse 36, you will be free indeed. What a verse that is. If that that is what Jesus is offering, free indeed, then 
can I say, yes, I want a part of that? And as a believer, to, to know that that is what I've been granted and that I'm not under this slavery of sin that we've spoken about. Uh, that is, wow. I just want to bask in the warmth and the goodness of this promise and this reality for as long as I can. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Uh, But we're getting used to the pattern in John's gospel, aren't we? The the pattern uh, in the way this gospel goes is there's a wonderful promise by Jesus or a wonderful miraculous sign that he does and it's followed by controversy, isn't it? That's what keeps on happening. This chapter is no exception. The controversy here is focused on the question of whose children they were. Jesus insists that they're not Abraham's children uh, and he explains why. Uh, This is my point 2a on the outline and I'm passing over it very briefly. He says, look, no, you're not Abraham's children and here's why. So they try a different tack. Partway through verse 41, they, they say, well, we're not illegitimate children which is probably a dig at the circumstances of Jesus' birth, by the way, Uh, they go on to say the only father we have is God himself. But Jesus will not accept that either. And he explains why. It's because they're not understanding the, the message from heaven that he gives. And so Jesus shows them that they're not Abraham's children and they're not God's children either. And so it becomes a bit of a case of, well, the suspense is killing us. Whose children can these people possibly be? And when the suspense is resolved, it is in a shocking way. Verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil. Now, I'm sure you'll agree that it's shocking Jesus calls them children of the devil. He's not saying that they're the devil's spawn, that they are somehow demons or not not humans or anything like that. All people have been created by God and are loved by God and are in God's image. Even if as sinners we become a a, a sort of a mangled image. So he's, he's not denying that in any way but what he's saying because the word father is used quite flexibly in the bible he's saying that they've fallen under the sway of the devil he's saying that they've fallen into the kingdom of the devil and they're following him as their master and that is why they're trying to kill jesus because as jesus says here the devil was a murderer from the beginning If we read on, we'll see that the devil's murdering is tightly bound up with his lying. See what it says there? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. Now, if you think back to the story of the Garden of Eden, how did the devil bring death into the world? Through lying, right? Actually, it was a whole web of lies... But the common thread of all of those lies that the devil told in Genesis chapter 3 
The fundamental lie was his assertion that God is not truly good. His, his implication in what he said to Adam and Eve was that God is motivated by envy and self-protection. And that is the lie by which the devil keeps the whole world enthralled. He's got the world suspicious of its creator. He's got the world in rebellion against its creator. And consequently, he's got the world under the sentence of death. The fundamental lie that he has got the world believing is that God is not truly good. Now that is every bit as absurd as the lies which prop up the dictatorship in North Korea. But it has become incredibly successful. If you want to see how successful it is, just have a look at verse 45 where Jesus says to the Jews, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Those under the devil's sway are simply allergic to the truth about God. They can't receive it. This is a tragic and very deep slavery. And I think this helps us understand how Jesus, the capital T truth, dispels the lie and brings us into freedom. Because Jesus' earthly life has displayed his perfect goodness to the whole world. Uh, I remarked last week that, that even, even in a time where Christianity is numerically shrinking in many parts of the world, Jesus himself still has a very good brand. People don't really want to say that Jesus was silly or a liar or worse than that. People know that Jesus was and is good. And in particular... Jesus' gracious, obedient, humble, loving, self-sacrificial death on the cross for us little lost sheep has displayed to the world that God is good. If If that death for you and me, something Jesus did not have to do, if that doesn't dispel our suspicion of God, Well, nothing will. I began by saying that everybody wants freedom, but nobody knows quite what it is. Well, we've heard this morning what Jesus' diagnosis is. The human race is held in a slavery to sin by the devil's lie that God is not truly good. The suspicion, the mistrust of God keeps the human race in rebellion against our good creator and in thrall to a wicked master who has fooled us into thinking that he's kind. The antidote to all of this is to know the truth. The person who is the truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the sheer goodness that he displayed to the world trains us, trains us again to know and trust that God truly is good. Now, I want to make it very clear, as I've spoken this morning, in a way I've been speaking with regard to the scenario before we become a Christian where we're in slavery to sin. 
course, if you are a Christian, and we've gathered here this morning because we believe in the Lord Jesus, if we're a Christian, we've been transferred out of that that kingdom into Jesus' kingdom, into that heavenly household where we are secure in God's love forever. So I, I... I don't want you to think that I've been speaking to you as if you're you're still in the devil's kingdom, right? If we're a Christian, of course, we've, we've got hold of that amazing promise of Jesus that if the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. I want you to know today that God is good, that God is deeply and wonderfully good. And... If you're not yet at the point, and this can probably happen to all of us from time to time, but if you're not yet at the point where you feel in your bones that God is good, remember what Jesus has said here right back in the very first verse we read, verses 31 and 32. It is by living as Jesus' disciple, it's by a closer walk with him, it's by remaining in his word, that we know Jesus the truth more and more. And so therefore we know more and more the goodness of God, the God who has set us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good God. Uh, You are are a God who has displayed your goodness to the world in the coming of your Son, especially by his death for us. Father, we are sorry that uh, so often, but before we, be- before we believed in you, uh, and even at times uh, tempted to, since we've believed in you, uh, we have been tempted by the devil's lie uh, to believe that you are not truly the, the, the loving God that you are. Father, we ask you to forgive us and please to free us from that lie. And that, Father, by your Spirit being at work in us, impressing on us the gospel of your Son, we might know the truth, the truth of your wonderful Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the freedom into which he has brought us. Amen.